This is the Let's Get Real Estate Show with your host, Danielle Chason. Full-time investor, strategic consultant, motivational coach, sought-after speaker, and host of your number one real estate investing show, Let's Get Real Estate, where real people are doing real estate. Hi, I'm Pete Reese, and I'm here with Danielle on the Let's Get Real Estate podcast, and we're here to talk about land flipping today. Very excited about this. Hey, everybody, it's Danielle Chase on here, and you've just tuned in to the Let's Get Real Estate podcast. Today, I am excited to bring on Pete Reese onto the show because he has a new strategy or a strategy that's not talked about a whole heck of a lot right now in real estate. So I just want to welcome you to the show, Pete. Woo, woo. Here you are. <laughs> well, that was quite the introduction. Thanks for having me, Danielle. Happy to be here. Yeah, I love, I love, I, I love bringing you on because this is something that was a new, mm, I don't want to say a new concept, but one that's not talked about a lot or practiced a lot, and you've found a lot of success with it. And it's the concept of land flipping. So we'll get into that in a minute. I just want to share a little bit about you uh, with the audience so they know a little bit about Pete. So you are. Uh, broker and investor in the San Diego area. You've been in real estate for over two decades. You've been doing lots of stuff. Your portfolio right now, your assets under management are just shy of $3 million. And interestingly enough, this is where I kind of was really intrigued. That is free and clear, which is not common for investors. Usually we leverage that. So maybe we touch on that too. But uh, yeah, I, I would love to hear your story, Pete, and a little bit about how you got into real estate and how you grew in real estate. Yeah, well, well, um, I guess my story starts like the same as a lot of people that get started in real estate. Bought our first family house um, in, I guess, the year 2000 and didn't really think about it as an investment, but ended up holding it for a couple of years and, and profiting about $50,000 from it just from sort of appreciation. We did put a little bit of sweat equity into kind of fixing things up. Uh, with my my very limited home improvement skills and shoddy work that I did myself, but that's another story. Uh, I tried to do well. I just, in hindsight, it wasn't that great. But anyhow, uh, so we did that, and it got caught. I got the bug a little bit. Like, wow, this is so cool. Bought a house. We made like fifty thousand dollars, and really didn't do too much. And uh, I just thought it was kind of cool. We upgraded to another house and kind of the same thing happened, put some work into it, bought kind of a fixer, put some work into it. This time I, I farmed a lot of the work out, so it was better quality and uh, made uh, more money on it. Then we were kind of like, well, we can do this. We can, we can flip houses because we were watching all the shows on TV. So we started getting into flipping houses and uh, we're doing really well with it. Um, I actually got my broker's license so we would have better access to deals ourselves and be able to show our pro ourselves the properties and kind of jump on them as they came available right away on the MLS. And that's where we were getting all of our deals. Um, real estate market crashed in 2007 to 2009, somewhere in there. Uh, and then at that point, I kind of shifted gears. And, you know, my intent was never to kind of be a broker to be a broker, but I ended up shifting to selling listings for the banks because those are the properties that were selling at the time. So I went through a period where I was selling uh, REO listings, they call it, and uh, then also uh, worked up for a while on specializing in short sale properties, listing both of those types of properties. Did that for a while. And then I kind of um, 
changed my focus a little bit and for a number of years and was working solely with investors to kind of find them deals. So I knew what they needed and I knew how to find them deals. So I was working with kind of uh, a lot of the larger companies here in San Diego and just finding them deals. And that was kind of a, uh, a good match for me for a while. And then um, got out of kind of real estate altogether for a number of years, working on another uh, coaching business with my wife. Uh, she has a um, blog and a travel blog. So for about, um, I don't know, three to four years, kind of worked on that specifically with her and kind of ramping that as, up as much as possible. But I kind of got the bug and I had to get back into real estate. And it's only been a couple years ago since we decided to like, hey, uh, we should get involved in real estate investing again. Heard some stuff or read some stuff online about land investing. And I kind of I don't know, I kind of got hooked and went down a whole rabbit hole and then started the whole operation associated with that. So um, our first year in business uh, was 2021 and really our first resale deal that we did for um, a land flip was in March of 2021. Uh, the first year we did um, just over 1.2 million in revenue for the land flipping and that's about 50% gross profit margin. And then uh, this year, I was trying to hit four million. I don't think it's going to quite happen. It's going to be somewhere between three and a half and four million. So we're about uh, tripling what we did last the first year. So that's crazy. That's insane. So tell me a little bit about this. So the strategy that you're using is land flipping, and like you said, you're hitting targets in and around fifty percent profit on uh, on your investment. And you're doing these, we talked a little bit offline, you're doing these over like 60 days. So you're moving a lot of land, buying, selling a lot of land very quickly and actively. And so tell me a little bit about the strategy so that the audience can understand. Yeah. Now there's a, there's a number of different ways to do land flipping, uh, but here's the way I do it, which may be quite different than, than how some others do it. Basically, we buy uh, properties off market. So we use direct mail to, to generate our leads. So we mail landowners with specific offers uh, and you know a specific offer price and everything. So we mail that out. They respond to us. We either work out a deal or we don't, but we get under contract, do our research on the property, close on it, um, cash in, in most cases uh, with our own cash. And then we do some minor improvements to the properties, uh, or sometimes we'll just put it right up back on the market and then resell it. When I say minor improvements, I mean stuff like we'll, we'll, we'll do some clearing of the land. We'll do some, we'll get a perk test. So, so there's a, a possibility to do a septic system. We'll get a survey done. Um, sometimes we'll do a minor subdivision. So we'll split a lot into three to five parcels, something like that. But the great majority of the time, we're doing some some pretty minor stuff to it, minor value-add improvements to the properties. And they're putting it on the market and then we're reselling it. We're putting it on the market at a price that's kind of aggressive as well. So that allows us to resell the properties quickly. So, you know, if say, say retail value is 100,000, we may put it on the market for 80, 85,000. So we know it's just under market value. And we're only buying properties that we consider good properties, good quality properties that we know that there's buyers for. And uh, and then that's how we're able to sell quickly. So our average days on market or our average hold time actually for our properties that we have sold are uh, just over 60 days at this point. So, 
Awesome. Okay. So there's a couple of things I want to unpack there. Uh, right from the beginning, you said how you're finding these properties as you're reaching out by direct mail. But interestingly enough, you're doing this a little bit differently than direct mail is typically done. So instead of saying, hey, we buy land or we want to buy your property, you're actually going straight into an offer. That is very curious to me. So do you do all of the due diligence on the property beforehand and you kind of know that area? I guess you, you're farming a specific market, so you would know the area? Well, what we do is we kind of just take averages for specific areas. Um, for instance, I may take a, a county in Maryland, you know, Maryland state in the United States, and um, we'll look at properties. I, I use a company called DataTree. It's a first American title company. So they've got this service where basically you can look up property records for anywhere in the United States and find out, you know, uh, you can pull up lists of like all the properties that are 10 acres plus in, in this specific County. And, you know, and then, you know, I, I pull the list and we might say, you know, like we might pull a list and there could be, you know, thousand of these properties available that fit that general criteria. We do some things to kind of scrub the list a little bit. Like we remove places that it removes owners that I know would never sell. Like maybe it's a railroad or maybe it's a utility company or maybe it's the county or a city or something like that. So we remove all those. And then what we do is we take a look at the comps and we see kind of on average what things are selling for in that county. Like say, you know, an average in that specific county could be uh, $3,000 an acre. And then we kind of back off like where we need to buy a property at in order for it to make sense and to make the whole system work. And then we just do multiplication and, and uh, do our offers that way. So obviously there's um, no individual research being done on each of those properties just because it's more of a quantity situation. And we're, we're sending out a lot of mail too. Um, you know, at this point, we're, we're sending out about 50,000 letters per month, been as high as 100. I've sent out as much as 100,000 letters per month. So on average, it's about 50 cents a piece. So you do the math, it's actually a, a good amount we're spending on mail, but the return on investment is there. Uh, so getting back to that, you know, as far as the offer prices go, what happens is that, you know, sometimes we're right on, sometimes we missed it, like we're either too high or too low on our offer price. And that kind of gets figured out, you know, when, when a lead responds, sometimes, you know, we'll get someone that responds and says, you know, why'd you send me such a low offer or why, <laughs> you know, this is an insult or, you know, we, we have those things that happen and it's, you know, obviously it's not going to work for anyone, everyone. And, and we know that, but, and then sometimes, um, you know, someone will accept the offer, either mail it back to us or email us a signed agreement or something like that. And then we'll take a look and say, oh, we were unfortunately too high. And then we have to have that conversation with the, the property owner and, and explain why we were too high and, and how we missed it. And here's what it would take to put the deal, deal together if you want to move forward. So it's, it's kind of like that initial outreach, that initial uh, way to get a good response. And, and a lot of times, you know, you know, we'll get an accepted offer and it'll be perfect. And we just move forward like that. But if it needs to be adjusted in some way, we we'll, we're always like having that discussion and letting them know, know what it's going to take to make a deal happen. 
And so I'm assuming I, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around, like if I was a landowner and I got in the mail a contract to buy my property, like that's, yeah. I mean, if you want to be different, that's different. So I love, I love that strategy. Uh, but I'm going to assume that in that contract, you're going to be putting a condition of like viewing the property. So this is the price and there's a condition of like walking the property or something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. We've got all kinds of, um, you know, contingencies built in there. And it's just, it's really, a, it's a very simple thing. It's a one page purchase agreement. So it's very, very simple. And in the states that we work in, it's generally um, no problem to have a simple agreement like that. And there are, you know, all all kinds of um, contingencies built in so we can inspect the property and make all the calls that we need to make and and kind of do all of our, our due diligence that we need to do. Most of the time, everything goes great. You know, all the due diligence checks out. But sometimes we do run into a snag where something maybe was not disclosed to us by the property owner or something we kind of dig up, which would um, limit its usability as a property. And then we have to either you know, go back to the seller and attempt to renegotiate, or we let them know that we can't move forward for whatever reason. Now, that's just fascinating so. to me. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, <laughs> something else you mentioned was that you only invest in good properties. And so right. what quantifies, first of all, just to be clear again, for the audience, what you're investing in is really large parcels of land. So it's not just like small, like little, you know, 50 by hundred pro properties, you're targeting acreages, right? Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, that's what we're doing. At this point, we're, we're trying to stay over 10 acres parcel as, as a minimum. We've done parcels that are as small as two acres, and that's kind of like a whole another niche. There are land investors that specifically focus in properties that are, you know, what, what they're considered infill lots, you know, in, in cities or, you know, urban areas and things like that, where there's just kind of a lot. And, and then that they, you know, not, not these rural acreage properties that we do. So that's a whole nother niche, same business model, I guess, but, but a different way to kind of approach it. But we look at the larger parcels. I mean, it's just kind of what uh, feels easier to us and kind of resonates best with us. So how, so how do you determine what is a great property with that. So, you know, size wise, you want to be over 10 acres, but I'm sure location and proximity to certain things and maybe even access are important, yeah. right? All, all good, all, all things to look at. Um, first of all, I, sh I should say that um, we buy most of these properties. Um, like personally, I never go on these properties, step foot near anywhere near these properties. Um, we, we buy them, you know, we're in San Diego and a lot of the stuff we're buying is on the East coast of the United States. So we use, we we're heavily reliant on a number of different things to kind of do our research and kind of determine if that is a good property. First of all, we use a, a software called MapRite. It's just an app where we pay a subscription to, but it allows us to basically look up every single parcel uh, in the United States, pretty much, and get a, get a real good feel for what that property is about. Uh, it overlays satellite images. It overlays wetland areas. It overlays flood zone areas, um, utility lines, lots of different things like that that we look at. And kind of the main factors, the, the most important factors really when determining if it's, uh, you know, quote, a good property would be access. First of all, you need to make sure that 
the property is not landlocked. And um, landlocked is when you you basically you've got an island in the middle of all these other parcels and you have no real legal way to access that. And believe it or not, there are a lot of those parcels out there. And we'll get, you know, there's no way to really filter that out when we send out our uh, mail. So we'll get a lot of those people, you know, contacting us back and wanting to move forward with the offer. And then, you know, first thing we do is we look on the maps and say, oh, you know, now I know the property is landlocked. There's not really much you can do with it. So there are people that specialize in just buying those properties for really cheap and legally establishing access. But that's kind of a whole nother, <laughs> whole nother side of the business. But um, we look for properties that already have legal access established. So either they're, you know, some sort of frontage on a major road or there is a deeded easement to the property. So it's legally allowed to access the property. Um, other thing we look for is, you know, we, we want to make sure that the property is not all swampland or wetlands. Um, it's fine to have some of the, that on, on a property if, you know, in certain areas specifically. Um, but if the whole property is that, then it really limits its potential uses. The other thing that's important in some areas is to make sure it's not fully uh, within the, um, they call it the FEMA flood zone. So it's like a, a, every, you know, 50 or 100 years or 500 years, like that's where the flood will happen. And uh, it's, you can generally build in some of those areas, but there's going to be additional restrictions, meaning that the property is going to have probably less value to an end buyer because it's going to be harder to sell. So we try to stay away from those um, that have like full are fully within like a flood zone because it's just going to be more difficult to sell. Other things we look at are topography. You know, if a property is way too sloped or on the side of a mountain, it has very limited use. Um, If it's um, we look at things like uh, in some areas, you know, are there trees on the property or is it just kind of like, a clear cut area did have trees on the property, but it's been clear cut of all the trees, you know, that affects its value as well. And, um, you know, then we look at things like, you know, proximity, like the area itself. And most of the times, even if it's a very rural area with not a lot going on, as long as, as long as we're, it's a nice property and we're buying it at the right price, uh, it's generally going to work, but the area definitely impacts the value and the amount that we'll be able to sell it for. And the other things that we do kind of look at um, as well is the activity in a particular market. And if there's a bunch of listings within that range in a certain area and very limited sales, then we know it's not really that hot of a market. So you get a, you, it'll still sell if it's a good property, but you have to be priced really, really aggressively in order to sell it. So you got to be the best option out there. Do you align yourself with realtors in those specific markets that can help you determine that information? Yeah, great question. In fact, that's that's one part of what we do, which is probably different than a lot of other land investors. Um, a lot of other land investors are trying to save money on commissions and kind of market things directly. But uh, I know the value of a good broker or an agent and specifically um we incorporate them in the whole process. You know, like when we're looking at buying a property, one of the first things we do is reach out to our local broker agent partner that we've got and say, Hey, what do you think of this property? What do you think you you'd be able to sell it for anything we should be aware of? And, uh, you know, we, we get their opinions and we leverage them for that. And then we give them the listing when we close on it. 
So it's kind of kind of a win win. But yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of using professionals in the area because, you know, spe- specifically, you know, like buying a property from thousands of miles away, uh, you don't know what each neighborhood is like. You don't know you don't know all the nuances to a specific area, and it and it really helps to have someone on the ground. Um, other big thing we do is every single property we send out a um, uh, photographer and a drone um, photographer to do an inspection on the property and and to kind of um, give photos and, you know, put boots on the ground and kind of, you know, uh, uncover anything that you can't see from those satellite images. Yeah. I think it's really important to have somebody there. If you're not going to walk through the property, but somebody needs to be there to walk through the property. And as a realtor, I think it would be really attractive to have a client that is just looking at land because listing a piece of land is, would be, I would think a lot easier to manage than listing a single family detached house because then you don't have to worry about lock boxes. You don't have to worry about showings. They can just go look at it when they want. And uh, I think it would be a lot easier um, to sell for sure. Yeah. And you know, the, yeah, the land brokers too. I mean, they, and we pay, um, we pay a 10% commission, you know, and, and typically for, for single family homes, it's 6%, you know, something like that uh, in most markets. So uh, we pay a higher amount, and I, I realize that some of these um, sale prices are probably not as large as they would be with the house on them. But um, you know, the fact that there's a uh, easier um, process that you know that selling those type of properties um, is, is, I think, I think attractive, and the fact that we we um, from the beginning we were like, hey, w- w- what would be an aggressive price that would sell it quick- quickly? Last thing we want to do is have you know have a listing that sits out there for them for six months or a year or something like that. We want to price things so it sells right away. Yeah, and I think that's what makes your model work really well is because you're moving things very very fast, and so you were talking about making you know, that hitting that three to $4 million mark this year, but how much value of land have you moved in order to get that? That's a lot of land that you're churning over because typically the price points for land is lower. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's going to be, uh, this year, I think we're going to hit about, um, 70 properties that will encompass, encompass that, um, three and a half to $4 million. And that's the revenue that we take in. The gross profit is about 50%. Yeah. So about half of that is actually profit. Now, then I have to back off, you know, like the cost of mail and team members and things like that. But it's still really a a healthy profit. And what doesn't go into those figures, too, is the fact that we've also been accumulating a huge portfolio of land um, that we continually, it's like continually trading up and trading up um, as part of that. And that's that's where that... uh, that other figure that you're mentioning, you know, about uh, about $3 million in, in land that we own free and clear is as well. So that's inventory that, you know, we've got for sale and we're selling and, and it, in various stages. So, yeah, so that's incredible. And so you mentioned other team members. So we've got obviously the realtor who can kind of act as boots on the ground and the local area expert, which is absolutely needed so that you can verify if there's any swamp lands or any zoning issues, uh, flood zones and that sort of thing. What other people do you have that other experts maybe that you have on your team to lean into? Because it is difficult to do some property management or project management from 
a, a distance when you're doing it virtually, if you're not there to meet with a contractor, let's say you want to put a culvert pipe or a septic or anything like that, or even just clearing brush. So how do you manage the projects and what kind of experts do you have on your team in order to help you with that? Yeah, well, we've got a, a, a pretty decent sized team built out now, and we've kind of added to this as time has gone on. I've been trying to replace all the roles that I've got within the company. I mean, most of them, uh, there's still the, a lot of the stuff I do, but I've been trying to kind of um, bring on other team members that can take a lot of the load off of, of me doing everything myself. So I've got like a acquisition manager, uh, someone that does all the discussions with the, the um, property owners themselves when they call in or, or email in or whatever the case may be. I've got a lead manager that enters everything into our CRM and basically does some initial due diligence on the property online. Uh, I've got another um, property analyst, which is a big part of our team. And, and basically he takes a look at all of these properties and kind of makes recommendations on like, we should pass on this one. We should buy this one. We should buy this one, but we'd need to get it for this price. Um, coordinates with all the brokers that we're working with and gets their opinions on the property, follows up on the due diligence um, that we order and just kind of digs into things really deep after we get things in, under contract as well. Um, and then I've got a uh, transaction manager that handles like all the transaction once we get under contract to purchase something. And then also um, she handles all the transactions on the resales as well, you know, like coordinating with the title companies and the uh, attorneys, escrow, that type of thing. And then I've got another team member that really helps building the list that we that we prepare and kind of uh, scrubbing those lists to make sure we're sending out the best possible mail that we can. Um, and as far as, you know, coordinating on, on the projects that we have done on these properties, um, uh, the, the person that handles the, the, um, the analyst, uh, type, um, roles on the properties, he's the one kind of coordinating some of that stuff and I coordinate some of that stuff. So, uh, we try to use, you know, a lot of these areas that we're kind of doing regular deals in. So we've got some pretty good, um, people established on the ground, you know, people to clear brush for us or. Uh, a soil scientist for the septic and things like that. So they know what we're all about and, and we know that we can trust them to do a good job. So. Yeah, that's awesome. So you've got several team members and solid team members, it sounds like, um, that help you with the process, but how do you keep everybody organized and communicating well? Cause I, I'm sure like everybody has their role, but it's all kind of intertwined. So is there a platform that you use to streamline all of that? Yeah, we've got everything uh, everything in our um, kind of proprietary CRM that we built around this. It's kind of customized to, to the land business. And uh, that's something we built over time and kind of, you know, keep adding to and adding automations where we can and try to make things go as smoothly as possible. We communicate on Slack. So everyone, you know, during their working hours is always on Slack and able to communicate with each other. Um, I recently brought on uh, an executive assistant as well. And he's really been key in kind of helping me, um, you know, organize things with the team and keep certain projects um, on track and keep moving forward as a company. So that's really helped uh, quite a bit as well. But those are the main tools we use, especially for communication, Slack and our CRM. Mm -hmm. And I would think that's critical because of the speed of implementation with what you're doing and how fast you're moving things along. You absolutely have to have people that are um, doing what they need to be doing in order to push things forward. So yeah, that's 
freaking amazing. Like I'm just I'm blown away at this. Like this is a whole different strategy that I don't think is really tapped into in a lot of areas. And I love that you're doing it remotely. So it doesn't necessarily need to be in your backyard in order for it to work when you put the right systems in place. Yep. And you know what? I was just going to say there are a lot of land investors that kind of focus on their backyard, but um, I don't see the... I don't see the personally, I don't see the need for it because there's a lot of opportunity in a lot of other places and Southern California, where I'm at is probably not one of the best areas for <laughs> flipping land. So it's all desert there. <laughs> yeah, I know it really is. It, everyone has this uh, vision of it being all, you know, like ocean and palm trees and stuff. And then once you get over the mountains, it's kind of like a, it's desert square. Yeah. It, yeah. So. It's very brown. I think being a Canadian with lush greenery yes. and lots of life going to San Diego is a bit of a shock. And then you see um, the turf, the fake turf on some front lawns and whatnot. It just seems so out of place to me. You don't have that fake turf there? No. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> it's expensive too. Real grass is cheaper, but you know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, with the winters that come in and the amount of snow that we have, our soil is very well hydrated. So we have absolutely no issues with growth here. Yeah. <laughs> so listen, if anybody wanted to, there's something else we talked about before the show was um, because you're very passionate about this new strategy that you're implementing and that you're doing and you want to share it with everybody. And that's why we're on the show today. I just, um, when we were talking, you, you're telling me that now you're launching a new podcast. We've got a new podcast it's called Turning Profit, and you can go to the website called turningprofit.com to find out more about that. And that's where, I guess, Pete, you're in there and you're just sharing a lot of different tips and strategies and tools to help people who might want to be doing the same thing. Yeah? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're going deep into the business model itself that we do. And like I said, it's, it's our way of doing it. And there may be better ways. There may be other. I know there are other ways. There may be better ways. But uh, we're sharing what we do and and how we get it done. Uh, we do a monthly income report on there, which basically here are all the deals that we did this month. Here's the revenue we took in. Here's the profit. Here's the profit on each deal. The return on investment in each property. Um, here's what went well about this deal. Here's what we learned, and we can maybe do better next time. And just try to give as much insight as possible, because I know when I kind of went down this whole rabbit hole and started this this business, very limited information out there. And I just, you know, I read anecdotes of people saying, oh, you know, I bought this property for 10000 I sold it for 30000 And I was like intrigued, you know, and if I if I would have had access to this information that we're putting out there, it just would have kind of really opened up my eyes to the possibilities in the business. And and maybe things uh, that uh, that I didn't consider initially. <laughs> there are a lot of things I didn't consider initially, and I eventually figured it out. But I'm sure I could have shortcutted that quite a bit. And uh, so that's the reason by, behind doing the income reports. And uh, you know, and and if you're interested in that type of thing, then obviously we'd love to have you listen to our podcast, which is about that. And and we'll have other real estate investors on there talking about different business models as well. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because most, I think the common belief about land and making money on land is you buy it and you hold it for five years or 10 years. And then 
it, the value goes up and then you're able to sell it at a higher rate. And so it's kind of a quote unquote safe place to park your money where it's going to get some appreciation and there's very little risk in the sense that uh, there's no property that's a liability or that requires maintenance and that sort of thing. So, you know, I think traditionally people have invested in land just to park their money and think, hoping that long-term they'll make a return, a, a better return through appreciation. But how is it, how is it that you're able to turn them over in 60 or 90 days and get that lift as such a dramatic lift to be able to pay yourself and a team and the marketing? Right. Uh, we're buying it right. So we're buying it at a price that <laughs> it, this is a really good deal. And what we offer, what we offer to the landowners is, hey, um, we'll close quickly and we'll buy it cash. You don't have to have the hassle of listing it with a broker and, you know, maybe doing some stuff to the property to make it retailable and then waiting, you know, six months to a year in order to sell it at, at this retail price. We offer them a price that makes sense for us. Obviously, it's not going to be top value that they could get if they went through that whole traditional selling process. And we're up front with them. We're like, hey, you know, we're not for everyone. Uh, for certain situations, we're great. If if you're looking to sell a property and just not hassle with it, you understand you're not getting, you know, top market value for it, uh, then we're a, a good option for them and with, with limited hassle. A lot of these people that we end up purchasing these properties from, they've never even been there. They may have inherited it. They may uh, have owned it, you know, for many years, and it's just been a um, the only time they think about it is when they have to pay the property taxes each year. So, you know, we're able to offer them a solution, and uh, it it works for some people, and it doesn't work for others. But essentially, it comes down to we're buying it at the right at the right price. We're doing the the minor improvements and the minor value adds to the property, which make it um, retailable, and then we're putting it on the market. Um, below market value so we can sell it quickly. So that's the, that's the, the, um, that's the thing that makes it work really. I love that. And so I just got one more question because you did say earlier about whether, you know, the trees have been cleared or not. Um, is it more, just to be clear, is it more valuable to have a piece of property with trees on it or not? Because I just look at it from an investor point of view. If the trees are gone, I would think that's a bonus because then I don't have to go and find somebody and pay somebody to do all the clearing and then all the roots and everything else. Um, but I think, did you say it was the opposite is true? Well, it depends. It depends on what the end use of the property is going to be. If someone's purchasing a property for recreational purposes, they want to, you know, ride their four wheelers out there, or, you know, just use it for something like that. A lot of times it's really helpful to have the the trees still intact on the property. Nice wooded properties are, are uh, in demand. If it's, um, uh, but in some cases, you know, a property is farmland that's generally more valuable than um, just a property that's just, you know, woods. Um, the other thing is, too, that we that we get into is sometimes people um, will have their timber like harvested and logged and they'll come through and they'll just kind of clear cut all the trees and kind of leave a big mess behind. Stumps are there, you know. It's just big ruts in the ground and everything. And those type of situations uh, make it less valuable because there's got to be a, you, you got to either wait for the trees to grow back or it's just a lot of cleanup if you're going to turn it into just an open meadow or something like that. So, so I guess it depends. Would, would you take on a cleared property 
uh, that has tree stumps and stuff and then clear it and resell it? Or would you pass on something like that? Um, normally I, I have purchased those properties and a lot of times they're harder to sell. And, mm-hmm. um, I didn't realize that it made it that big of a difference is one of the lessons I've learned over time. But, um, so we generally stay away from, you know, an entire property that's been clear cut like that. And unless we can get it for a really good price where we know it's, you know, it's not going to make a difference either way, but it definitely makes things a, a little less desirable and a little harder to find an end buyer. Now it's common, you know, especially on really big properties, we'll have, you know, 300 acre property or something. They might, rotate different areas and they might clear 50 acres and sell off the timber for that. And then they'll replant it and wait for that to grow back. And then, you know, five, 10 years later, they'll take another section and do that, you know, so that's, that happens too. And, and there are, there are people that buy these properties just for timber investments as well. Yeah. That's very cool. Very fascinating. Pete, Pete Reese, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this um, little hidden gem of a secret strategy that you've really found your mojo with, like you've really got some good traction on. And um, I just love how you built systems. I'm a systems person. So I love how you built systems and a team around all these systems and streamlined everything to kind of end up hopefully firing yourself uh, at the end or just choosing to do what you want. <laughs> Isn't that Isn't that all real estate investors goals is to fire themselves? Yeah. So yeah, no, great show. Great. Like I'm just fascinated. Great information. I love how you're, you know, giving back and sharing your experience through turningprofit.com and and the Turning Profit podcast. So I hope if you're listening, go check them out and find out more about this strategy and see whether or not it makes sense for you. So Pete, do you have any final words to anybody who might want to be doing this strategy as a, um, as a, as a, a new strategy to implement into their business or start a business around this? Yes. That's, that's my goal. <laughs> that's what I want. <laughs> yeah. I would say if, if it is interesting to you, definitely read the income reports. There's a lot of insight and things that you could pick up in there that kind of just shows you, uh, what may or may not be possible, but um, I would say just go go in as like learn as much as you can about about the subject and how to evaluate properties and really get in as deep as you can because uh, knowledge is will, will get you really far. The more you know, the more you know uh, problems you'll avo- avoid and and the better you'll you'll be as an investor. So I love that. I've always said education is going to reduce your risk and limit it, limit your liabilities. And at the end of the day, that will really help you problem solve and foresee problems before they become a problem and avoid that risk. And so, especially when we're in real estate, the risk, the numbers are higher. So if something goes bad, it's not, you know, a couple hundred bucks that we're dealing with. It's a few thousand or couple tens of thousands. So uh, want to avoid that through knowledge. And that's what you're providing. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And to those of you who are listening, thank you for coming. I appreciate your support. And again, if you want to go check Pete out, it's turningprofit.com. And this is Danielle Chason signing off for the Let's Get Real Estate podcast. Bye for now. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening to our podcast and congratulations on improving your education real estate. Please leave a review only if you felt we provided value as it would really help us if you would leave a five-star review so that we can help reach a broader audience. And don't forget to comment what you enjoyed and tell us what you're looking to learn more about. As always, thanks for your support and we'll see you on the next episode.